You're listening to the GamesIndustry.biz podcast. I'm James Batchelor, and this week I'm joined by pretty much the whole team. I have... Matthew Handrahan. Brendan Sinclair. Rebecca Valentine. Hayden Taylor. Marie D'Alessandri. All with me in the virtual room around our microphones. It's the final podcast of the year, so we are going to be discussing our games of the year, our favourite titles uh, that we've played in the last 12 months, ideally ones that have actually come out in the last 12 months. And we're going to be starting with Matt. Uh, well, my choice for Game of the Year is The Outer Worlds, which is um, one of the better reviewed games of the year anyway, so I suppose in that sense it doesn't really need to be defended in any great way. Um, but it's also a game that's kind of significant, I think, in a, in a bunch of different ways um, that personally resonate with me. Uh, one is that it's just by Obsidian Entertainment, which is a studio that, I mean, you know, it's a well-known studio, but it's also a studio that has a reputation for producing broken and buggy games, or at least it did have... Um, I don't know if you can kind of recall, Batch, the period where, you know, Alpha Protocol came out, uh, Fallout New Vegas came out, and they were both fairly rough, felt a bit unfinished, and, and Obsidian had this reputation for kind of just putting out games that weren't weren't ready for market yet. Do you recall that period? I do. Those are the only two Obsidian games I've played, and that's why I've never been that fussed on those. Yeah, well, so that's the thing, but... I remember talking at the time, or not at the time, but sort of after the time, I remember we ran a feature in the magazine I was working on working on at that point in time with uh, Chris Avalon, who was uh, one of the founders of Obsidian and uh, a very prolific writer in the games industry. And he'd tell us sort of hair-raising tales of how little, how little runway they were given on those projects. I think they had like 12 months front to back to make the whole of Fallout New Vegas, for example. Um, they had... They had even less time than that to make Alpha Protocol. And I just developed a sense that actually what Obsidian was was uh, was a a studio that needed to keep the lights on, needed to pay its staff. And so when these big contracts from major publishers came along, they weren't in a position to say no. And they just had to kind of take the rough with the smooth. You know, you get to work on Fallout, but you've got to do it in 12 months, even though, you know, Bethesda itself. And again, this is all, you know... These are kind of half-full memories. Well, the point being, the Bethesda had like five years to make Fallout 3 and Obsidian had sort of 18 months or so to make a sequel of equivalent size. And actually, I think it's a better game. It's got more going on under the hood. And so I just I just felt that Obsidian were a studio that was sort of unfairly maligned because they were just trying to do business in that specific way. And if they were given the freedom, the time, to actually make a game to their own spec, uh, in in the time that they needed to make it work, that it wouldn't be buggy actually, and that the bugs were more were as much or more to do with the publishers as they were to do with Obsidian themselves. And I feel like the Outer Worlds is basically a proof of that point. You know, um, the Outer Worlds is similar to Fallout in a bunch of ways. It has that kind of sort of post-apocalyptic feel to it. It's not quite post-apocalyptic. It's sort of set on a, a bunch of outlying systems, uh, plan- planetary systems where humanity is kind of retreated to. It's a universe run by corporations, and 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 they they kind of build out a world full of colourful characters from that. Um, but it but it works it works brilliantly. You know, it, it's not it's not a buggy game by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's 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 exceptionally well written, which is what we know Obsidian for. I think that was always what shined through, even in those other games that were were a little bit on the buggy side. But it's just a very well conceived, a very well executed sort of open world-ish RPG with with funny dialogue, memorable characters and good quests. And yeah, you know, it, it's it's sort of catnip for me. That's exactly the kind of game I like, but also has this kind of background of Obsidian sort of proving that, you know what, that we're not a developer of broken games, we're a developer of games. And if we're given the time and space to do it, they're working private division on this one. Um, they can do it really well. Um, and then, and then, in in addition to that, I mean, have, have you played Outer Worlds? Back? I haven't yet. It's it's one I want to get to. Yeah. So it's the it's the the other aspects of it, because um, you know, because when you work on a business site, you play games and you enjoy games. But but for me personally, like I I enjoy games more when there's like a bit of a context around them. So one one part of that context is Obsidian sort of proving itself in a way that. I felt they didn't get a chance to on certain key releases in the past. Another one is it's, it was on Game Pass, you know, it was on Game Pass first day, which and that was, I think, the most the pow- most powerful expression of of what a uh, what an amazing service Game Pass is proving to be so far for me. You know, that's that's a game I absolutely would have bought first day, but I didn't have to. I just 
switched on my my Xbox one day and it was just there and I was able to play it and it's proved to be one of my very favorite games of the year I'm picking it as my favorite but you know that's largely because of because of factors like this that that this is it's also symbolic of what we imagine will become a, an increasingly powerful idea over the next few years that you're going to have these services now where if you've paid your you know 10 pounds or 10 bucks or whatever it is a month you get you know, very, very high quality games from some of your favorite developers uh, on the day they're released without actually having to make a purchasing decision, which I think is very, very powerful. And it really speaks uh, speaks to what, what Game Pass could eventually be. I mean, obviously, Obsidian is now owned by Microsoft, and, and this game was technically published by Private Division, the, the 2K um, sort of indie, the Take-Two indie publishing label. Um, but, th- but this is the kind of content that we can expect to see. And... You know, it's content that, as I previously said, was given the time and the space it needed to become what it became, which was uh, was an extremely good and rewarding game. And you would hope that the fact that it's on Game Pass and other people have the experience I I had with it, that the Obsidian is now going to be able to reach audiences that its games rarely have in the past. Um, you've got an Xbox, right, Batch? You've got you've got the ability to do what I did and just sort of download. I do, games. yeah, and I. I, I to your point, like actually for me, it's another really good example of why Game Pass is a great thing because this is the sort of game that I'd be curious about buying, be interested in buying, but being utterly skint might not risk the purchase. Whereas yeah. with Game Pass, I can just download it, try it, enjoy it, and if I feel the need, buy it to own it. Yeah, I mean that that's exactly the point, right? I mean, it's for me, it was a no-brainer because this kind of um, expansive RPG is the sort of experience I I wait for all year. You know, these are these are the games that I want to play the most. Um, so it wasn't wasn't a big big ask for me to to jump on top of it. And I've always really liked Obsidian as a developer and wanted wanted better for them, I suppose. But this was great. And actually, there, there's one more uh, you know aspect to all of this, and that's it's sort of you know Private Division when it set up was. Uh, pitch is like a, a new label for sort of double A developers, double A development. You know, this idea, I think they've also handled um, Ancestors, the, the Patrice Desolet game. This idea that the people who like know how to make a triple A game, that old school triple A game, don't necessarily need to make something of that scale. They can kind of reduce it a bit, work with a smaller team on a reduced budget and still come up with the goods. And actually, while Obsidian still has the capacity to make true AAA games, this does feel AA, like it's not as big as Fallout. And it's definitely more tighter in its focus. It doesn't have, there's a very famous sequence in Fallout 3 where you come across a town called Megaton. Um, and there's a mission where you basically have an option to, to nuke, nuke the entire town. And it's like a quest hub, you know, and you might have only, you might have only done this one quest line that leads you to this decision. And but you've met all of these NPCs and you have a choice and you can wipe that whole town and all of the quests that it holds off the map. Right? And it's a very memorable moment from that generation of, of video games. One of the highlights of that gener- generation it doesn't really have anything like that. Um, and I think you can tell that this is a very writing driven game because writing, while not, you know, it, it's not free, but it's not as expensive as kind of custom crafting, crafting like a. Uh, fully realized action set piece or whatever that might or, or something along those lines you know like it it can be it can be done with the with people sitting in a room and then it feels like that's how the game was imagined from the start but it's no you know it's really no worse for it i played i played it pretty thoroughly i didn't 100 percent it but i was definitely hoovering up loads of side quests i did the main story quest and i don't think i i, I even topped 30 hours in it you know and that for a lot of people and i'm sure you can appreciate this batch as a man with a family you know 30 hours for an open world rpg is pra- was practically unheard of right i mean if you can't sit down to the witcher with with less than 10 hours on your hands and expect to get anything done whereas you can complete a third of the outer worlds yeah absolutely i mean well ironically i'm trying the the witcher now on switch and i think it's taken me about four or five hours just to do the prologue and i now have like three massive acts to follow so that's one of the things that's appealed about the outer worlds is this smaller scale, this tighter scope, like I don't have time for 100 hour epics anymore. I don't know many people at my time of life who do. So, but we still want that big adventure. We still want that scope of a storyline and the freedom of choice when you play and to be denied that by the big triple A's, I'm glad that this sort of option exists. 
Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, you don't feel shortchanged by it. And obviously that comes with a very, very substantial caveat of it, basically, of it feeling like it was free in the first place because it's on Game Pass. But, you know, when you take the full suite of all the things I'm saying, like The Outworlds is not a, a radical game. It's not a particularly innovative game. It's a very well-made game. It's extremely sl it's slickly executed and well-written and well-imagined and all that stuff. But it's actually quite forward-thinking in a lot of ways. I mean, not, not all directly attributable to Obsidian, but, you know, it's it's a Game Pass game. It doesn't cost you anything to actually play it beyond the cost of a subscription service. Uh, it's from a studio that's part of the Microsoft stable, so presumably if The Outer Worlds does well, it, Obsidian will be free to make a sequel or to make other games of this kind. It's far more manageable than these games are. It's not kind of struggling to justify the the, the high price tag that, that RPG games sort of have to struggle to meet. And we're going to see maybe maybe Cyber, Cyberpunk 2077 will be my game of the year next year. And you know you're not going to complete that in 30 hours. That's going to be a... And I played The Witcher 3 front to back as well. And I, it took me about five months to get through that game based on my schedule. And, and, you know, and it was great. It was fun. But it was, really was the only thing I played in the best part of half a year. And... You know, it, it's just quite refreshing to see that actually maybe there is room for an open world RPG for, for a game in my position now. And there are more and more people like me as well. So, you know, Outer Worlds gets my nod for this year. And maybe next year I'll be giving that nod to an RPG of a much kind of more in its way, more old fashioned um, structure. You know, 200 hours minimum that you need to, to get the best out of the game. But, but for this year, the Outer Worlds was great. Played it in two weeks. Enjoyed every second. So that's mine. I, I tried. I tried playing Outer, Outer Worlds, and the thing that stopped me was that just the font on screen was just too small, and I just, I just couldn't play it at home on on a on my TV or console setup without like sitting right in front of the TV. So although I'm very excited for Obsidian RPGs, just the I guess the UI design kind of like yeah, kind of kept kept me from being able to play it honestly, which was a real shame. Yeah. Well, that, that's uh, it's, it's something I didn't encounter, but actually thinking about it, with the place I was playing that in, the, the setup of the room was such that the only way of actually getting a, t a chair in front of the telly at a reasonable distance was to put it directly in front of the TV about a few feet. <laughs> so I couldn't I, I practically have my nose pressed against the screen. So that's probably a, a very, very reasonable complaint with, with that. But actually, that's not the only game I've heard that complaint leveled out. I think that's, that's something that... that for some reason developers just still aren't that smart about is making text legible mm. uh, these days but and i don't know if that was controllable um but yeah there might be a reason to wait for the switch version indeed <laughs> indeed Rebecca, what has been your favourite game of the year? I, you know, I played a lot of big games this year and also a lot of small games. And I, I normally worry about, like, recency bias. I worry that, like, the things that I played later in the year are going to resonate more closely with me. But early this year, like, I think I think one of the first games I played this year, except, like, maybe Yoshi's Crafted World, I played East Shade. Um, just by uh, East, East Shade Studios, a guy named Danny Weinbaum. Um it's this game where you go to this island. Um, you're, you're, the character's mother has recently passed, um, and she, she you're, the character's a painter, and she has urged you to go to this island that she spent some time on in her youth called East Shade um, because, you know, she, there's all these beautiful things to paint, and she wants you to be able to experience it and see it. And the only real directive you have is that there are, I think, four or five specific things that she wants you to paint, and when you paint all of those, then the game essentially ends you can leave each shade um and so you're traveling across this island looking for these things that she wanted you to find and it's just a game about looking at things and looking at nice things and thinking about what would make a nice painting there's no there's no real painting mechanic it's just kind of a screenshot thing where you just you put up the canvas and you pick the view that you want and you take it um but everything is 
you're gated a little bit in terms of progress. Like there are certain you need you need money in order to get into certain areas, and you do that usually by um, getting paintings and selling them, or by having somebody ask you for a particular painting. You go find the thing they're looking for, you paint it, you bring it back to them, they give you money. Um, so there's a little bit of gating in that regard, but it's mostly it's mostly just wandering around this big beautiful island and everything. The thing that I love about Eastshade is the game is not about a character. It's got all sorts of the the, the people there are like these anthropomorphic um like animal people kinds of things they're all they're all very peaceful the lifestyle there is very oh we read books and we drink tea and we eat tarts and we we spend our time there's like a dream tea that just makes us really relax and have nice dreams and you know we we go out in the countryside and we we look at the sunrise and things like that it's all it's all very relaxed for the most part there's a few people who have some kind of like maybe darker problems but they don't play a huge role in the narrative um but it's just everything is made to be about this island and its culture and the way it feels when you walk around it. And it's it's just designed to sort of tell you this this weird story about a place and make you think about this place and how it makes you feel and how it makes you think. And I have this enormous library of screenshots that I'm now going through because I was playing this game and I just, I, I had to like stop eventually because I was constantly breaking my own immersion by having to take screenshots and share them of everything, of just absolutely everything. And I'm just going through them and all of them are these animals saying very quirky things and then just like this this gorgeous waterfall with a zip line over it and then this the sky with a windmill kind of in the background and a bunch of wildflowers and a giant moon in the sky with the sun next to it this cave with all these like sparkly lights on the top of it this giant like glacier with a moon like silhouetted behind it um the city with like the sun behind it like making it seem to glow like it's 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 beautiful the whole thing was just just peaceful and lovely and it made me, it made me feel just really good from start to finish it was about an 8 10 hour game depending on how how into the weeds you get with it but it just from start to finish it just made me feel good and peaceful and happy i was never annoyed with it i was never frustrated with it i was never mad i was never bored i was just pleasantly happy the entire time and that is just like amazing i don't think i've ever played a game that has made me feel just <sighs> consistently um, but yeah, East Shade's amazing. I, I love it just unapologetically. I, I yeah, I, it did not, it's not the most, it, it's, it's not a triple A game. It's not like the most high end, polished, super high quality 4K thing that I played all year, but it, it made me feel the best. And I think that matters. Sounds amazing. It looks pretty good though, right? Oh yeah, it does look quite good. I think, I, I think it's kind of interesting. Brendan, I think you interviewed Danny about this actually, and I can't remember actually what was said in that interview that made me think of this, but the game, if you look at it up close, like if you're standing in the forest and you look down at the grass, you can see kind of that the grass looks weird. Like it doesn't look like grass, but that's not the point. The point is not that you're like looking at all the details super close up. The game wants you to look up and out and see like these landscapes and the landscapes look incredible. They are like gorgeous. I'm going to, I don't, I don't know if like James is going to put a sharing image on this, but I'm going to send him a bunch of my screenshots and maybe he can do <laughs> this too, to use one for this <laughs> podcast post. Cause oh, it's just, it's beautiful. It's so pretty. There's so much thought. I'll compromise, like, between now and me editing this podcast, upload them to, like, a, a, a Flickr or Tumblr or something, and I will link to your gallery of screenshots. How's that? <laughs> I'll try to do that. No, it's, it's very much, it, it, the world is designed not just so you can move through it, but so when you look in any given direction, your eye is drawn to something that you maybe want to get, like, at a different angle and then paint. That sounds amazing. The first thing about Eshade that made me like go after the the interview with Danny in the first place was just that I thought the premise was really cool and that the trailer for it looked, you know, like it was paying off in that premise really interesting ways. But when I when I talked to him, um, if I remember right, he's he's a former AAA environment artist, and that is. So it's not just like this is a really clever premise, but it's also like here is something that you would think is built around what your biggest strengths are as a developer uh, for Danny. And and I know he had to, you know, push beyond that comfort zone uh, in a million ways to get the, the game done. But still, it like just from what I've seen of it, it looks like it, it's clearly 
you know, this is this is a game built around your wheelhouse. And it also just happens to have a really brilliant premise. Yeah, I think another thing, I'm sorry, I'm going through these screenshots still. I think another thing I really like about it is there's not, yeah, the premise is you're going out there to, you know, paint these things, you know, for, for your mother or whatever. But there's not, there's not like really a big story. There's not some grand like plot or whatever. But the writing is really quirky and good there are i have so many screenshots of these there's like animal characters there's like an, an owl person a deer person a bear person and they all have these really interesting like kind of like slice of life bits that you get from their side quests and none of them are really like giant or meaningful or impactful but they're all just interesting for their own sake there's a whole um there's a whole side quest you do where a guy wants you, this bear bear person wants to play a prank on his brother and his brother really, really loves, I think, uh, I think like raspberry tarts or something, but he hates grape tarts and he wants you to, to put on an act and deliver him some grape tarts, but convince him that they're raspberry tarts so he'll eat them and be disgusted. And you, you do this, you pull this prank on him and there's like this moment where you're afraid that he's going to be furious and like, I don't know, he's a bear, he might, like, murder you, I have no idea. But he ends up thinking it's hilarious, and then his other brother shows up, and for the rest of the game, they're just sitting there eating tarts together. And it's just, it's just funny, and the payoff is pleasant and nice, and there are so many little vignettes like that throughout the whole island, and it's great. At the risk of sounding like the ignorant console gamer here, is this on console yet? Because I, I, you guys put this on my radar, like, earlier this year when it, when it came out, and I... I just I, I love the sound of it. It sounds like exactly the sort of thing I want to lose myself in. But I don't have a PC that could run this. I don't have a laptop that could run this. So I am locked out of James, this experience. James, no, James. No PS4 and Xbox now. Excellent. Good. Okay, I will yeah. look that up. It needs, why, I why, mean, is Brendan, why is Brendan despairing at me? I, I think everything needs to be on Switch. It's not on Switch yet. I completely agree with that. Yeah. I agree with James, that definitely. Ignorant <laughs> console gamer is my brand, and you're infringing. No. Right now. <laughs> Apologies, apologies. The game my, has a my secret brand, I... underground tea drinking society. Guys, it's so good. <laughs> and that's the quote for this episode when I tweet it. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, what's been your favorite game of the year? Um, I was kind of paralyzed by the the whole game of the year thing this year because, uh, for one thing, ignorant console gamer here, um, uh, everything that I've played pretty much all year has has been on Switch, and a lot of what I played this year didn't actually come out this year. Um, it may have appeared on Switch for the first time, but I, I, if, if you're talking about just like the best game. I played that that came out this year for the first time. Uh, it is the incredibly fresh and forward-looking and novel Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which, yeah, no, no, it's basically just like all the other old games that I played this year, wait, wait, but wait, it's wait, a new wait. one. You played that on Switch? You played that on Switch and that was your favorite game? It was really good. I heard it was terrible on Switch. No, I, I found that the <laughs> performance issues people talked about were uh, overblown. I mean, there there might have been kind of like a hitch here and there, but yeah, for the most part, it it played just fine, and it was uh, like personally, I I actually prefer it to Symphony of the Night, which I felt had some some pacing and some sort of uh, direction issues with as you get further into it. Uh, yeah, Bloodstained is is great. If, if you're talking about just like the game that I played the most this year. That would be Dark Souls, because from January through April, I played through that on the Switch. Uh, I'd never played it before, and I was like, okay, this is this is a really cool game. I was not entirely surprised or amazed or whatever, because I had played Demon Souls and Bloodborne, but this was the first time that I went through, you know, like the From Software, I don't know, game that kind of changed everything for them. And yeah, that's... Hey, it turns out that's a great game. If you, if you had not heard that from anyone yet, then, you know, there's my recommendation. How um, does that run on the Switch then, Dark Souls? Uh, again, it's probably not the most, you know, technically flawless version of it out there, but it, it runs perfectly well. 
for 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 me anyways like i i, I think those souls games always sort of feel the slightest bit janky to me anyways so like if the if the game is you know if the frame rate dips here or there or things don't kind of feel that polished like that's i don't know if it's part of the charm but it's not it's not really a detraction for me um i mean and and if you're talking about like the game that sort of encapsulates the state of gaming this year that i played uh then my answer is actually puzzle quest the legend returns on switch just because like i haven't played that game since um 2007 it's it's a remake of the 2007 psp and ds game challenge of the warlords and it's a match three game with like role-playing game stuff tacked onto it and it works really really well and in the uh in the years after that came out they made like a sequel spin-off there was marvel puzzle quest on mobile phones which i got pretty far into i guess i played marvel puzzle quest for three years before the monetization mechanics finally just drove me away and i've kind of written off match three entirely since then but to go back and play basically the original puzzle quest again without any of the the monetization cruft on it 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 just it felt so fresh and unburdened by the same like crap that you see in in so many other free-to-play games like it turns out match three plus rpg is really solid mechanic in the first place and and that was like a, a really perfect answer to me for for what so much of gaming has has become uh to play that this year I keep meaning to go back to the original Puzzle Quest because I've got it. I've got it on my my Xbox account, and obviously, like it's backwards compatible, so I can play it on my my Xbox One. Although I, I've been tempted by the Switch version because it feels like the sort of thing I'd want to play on. the It's go. really good, but like, I remember it's, the Switch. I remember getting it when it first came out, and like just really enjoying. Yeah, that match three and RPG mechanic, like it it, it works brilliantly. And any mobile version I've tried, I, I tried like Marvel Puzzle Quest, and it's just so bloated with like the obvious like grind and the the attempt at getting you to you know play it every day and the need to unlock multiple characters to unlock and just no just all the trappings of free to play are there and i have to keep reminding myself i've got the original go back and play the yeah original. so the new one the, the new one's a remake and it's got some new content thrown into it and you can tell that they uh they had different artists doing some of the character art and stuff and there so bits of it are clearly sticking out like a sore thumb and don't fit together quite well <laughs> So there's there's a bit of that sort of uh, uh, mismatch thing, but but it's still on the whole, and there is grinding. Like I, I picked a um, apparently a, a not too easy character class, um, and I've I've been grinding my way through it a fair bit. But it's it's amazing how different the grinding feels when you know it's not there to push you to another purchase. Um, so that that's made it more tolerable for me. Uh, but my actual game of the year, just the game that I enjoyed the most. Having subtly uh, s- snuck in like would, three sort of games yeah, of the year already. Yeah, come on, Brendan. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I'll be quick with this one. Divinity Original Sin 2, uh, which came out a few years ago on PC. So, you know, ignorant console gamer here, late to the party. Um, yeah, but the, the game is just, it's an awesome role-playing game that that captures everything that i liked about the you know best dungeons and dragons games i was ever tagging along to because like D has never been like you know a huge thing for me but it's it's this this world that's packed with really cool and compelling stories tiny little little vignettes that are you know have a really interesting premise and then they just kind of let you they let you do whatever you want to to solve them or not solve them and it reacts in a fairly reasonable way including just letting you completely mess everything up and ruin things for you um before you've even really gotten too far into it because you were really bullheaded or did something dumb and it's it's just like it's 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 a really it's it's 
an 80 hour plus role playing game. I put more than 80 hours into it. I still haven't finished it. I can actually see myself doing another playthrough just because there are so much to the world, so many different paths through it. I'm clearly seeing like, oh, well, this could be done this, that, and the other way. And these would have very different, huge impacts on the story going forward, which would I want to do again? And, and yeah, it's fantastic. I'll stop talking now though. That, that sounds amazing. You're not alone in that because um, in our year in numbers, which should be on the website the day that this episode goes out, one of the highest, so three games got the highest rated score on Metacritic this year of 93. One was the PC version of Red Dead Redemption 2. One was, do you know what, I've already forgotten the third one, but one of them was Divinity Original Sin 2. It was one of the highest rated games of the year. And I was like, I clearly need to, to give this a look because it's, it's better than I, I it's had so heard. Good. I have heard literally no bad things about Divinity Originals and I have like five or six friends that have played it in some fashion over you know the last like what two years now I don't know how long it's been out and zero bad things about that game I'm just very very excited about everything you just said Brendan because Divinity 2 is the game I'm saving for my Christmas break because uh, it should have been probably my game of the year if I had time to play this year but it's I know it's it's like Becca just said I've never heard any bad thing about it it sounds absolutely amazing and it's swelled my streets and i'm so looking forward to playing it can i spoil one thing just, just uh, yeah sure why yeah, not sure, sure. <laughs> so there was a um an ally that i had made in in my way through the game as trying to be you know the the noble upright hero saving everyone that i possibly can and uh we get separated i come back and i, I find him in a field later on in 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 my playthrough and he's burying his parents who have tragically died and i noticed that the the fresh graves um they are the same like telltale mound of dirt that usually means buried treasure brendan no no. (laughs) brendan So while he was working on dear old dad, I th- I managed to get I think it was a an amulet off of mom. <laughs> but then while <laughs> while I w- was actively digging up the uh, his dad's plot, which he was trying to fill. Um, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, he he took exception to it for some reason. So, <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, so now, so now we've got mad beef. Uh, oh yeah. my god, Brendan. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't help it. Fun times with video games. I couldn't. I think I hereby re- relieve you of your ignorant console gamer brand and bestow you the grave robber brand. <laughs> I thought you were a nice person. I, I did quick save it before doing that and reload it as soon nice. as I saw what happened. But sometimes... Classic strategy of the quick save. Sometimes a world is just so interesting that you want to like... Dig up a grave, really, of course, really why react not? to this exactly the way that I want. And yeah, there was stuff in there too. So... <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing though this, this is what I love like that's one of those things where like the developers know that someone will try digging yeah. up the grave so let's put something yeah. in it good stuff Marie, please tell me you've not been robbing graves this year. What's um, been your favourite game? I couldn't say I haven't for sure, to be honest with you. Um, but I'm going to do a Brendan too and say that uh, my game of the year, oh, actually not uh, from this year. So <laughs> I spent most of my year playing Assassin's Creed Odyssey and God of War. And these are my game of the year. But they've not been out this year, so I'm not going to talk about them. But they're definitely at the top of the list. Um, so weirdly enough, the main thing I'm going to talk about is uh, Mario Maker 2, Super Mario Maker 2. And I say oh, it's... I need this game. <laughs> I say it's weird because it's weird for me to even say that out loud because my, my first experience with Mario Maker was, was the 3DS version, uh, which I think came out in 2016, and I fucking hated it. I really hated it. <laughs> Um, I really like it just didn't click I was like why would people be even remotely interested in doing that and that comes from someone who really loves Mario like I 
played all Mario games. I love them all, but Mario Maker just wasn't clicking. Um, so I played the 3DS version because back then I didn't have a Wii U, weird enough. Um, then I got a Wii U years later, actually just a couple of years ago. I got my first Wii U, super exciting. And I played Mario Maker and I was like, you know what? Actually on the Wii U, it works a bit better. And maybe I can see now why people love this game. And then Super Mario Maker 2 released this year. And that's just the perfect sequel. It, it's just much better than the first one in so many ways. It's just, well, it's a lot of fun to start with, and that's great to have because sometimes some video games are pretty heavy, so it's just good to have some fun. And uh, it just expanded upon that universe in many, many very smart ways. They added all sorts of cool features, they added the 3D world universe, which works really well. In that context, they added a lot of bits and bobs, like on-off switches, conveyor belts, like those stupid slopes that everyone wanted for some reason, and I'm still not sure why. Um, you're not limited by side-scrolling anymore, um, all sorts of fun things to do. Um, and yeah, I think when it first released, the first downside I was seeing was there was no costumes. Uh, but now I'm not even mad about this anymore, because they're just released a big update which added the Zelda universe to Mario Maker and that's just an absolute game changer. It's just a whole new game, different mechanics and it's just it's just really what I expected from the, that Dungeon Maker tool that was in Link's Awakening but that was really not super great and I didn't really use it because it wasn't good. Um, so that's just a great addition to Mario Maker. It has an excellent story mode. Uh, like, I would have been happy just playing the story mode because only that took me quite a long time to 100% because there yeah, are 100% things. Um, it has an incredible community, uh, super, super creative. Um, I think overall, anything that just promotes creativity is always a big yes for me. Um, and I'll always enjoy it. Uh, they added multiplayer co-op that are super fun, fun again. Um, they added recently as well some speedrun stuff called Ninjis, and that just for me shows a real understanding of the community, because I know that's a, something that a lot of people were um, expecting or waiting for at least. Um, and I think having that understanding of the community is not necessarily a done deal for Nintendo all the time, because they've they're actually not that great with the Mario Maker community. Um, there have been a few cases of um, very prominent streamers who've had levels that are excellent levels uh, that have just been removed by Nintendo, saying that they just breached their rules and no one really understands why. And it's just stupid because some of those people, those um, content creators, oh, I hate this word, streamers, whatever, um, have just they're just absolutely amazing. They come up with things that I wish every single game developer could think about sometimes when they create a video game. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure what else I can say about this, so I'm going to talk about another game, if that's okay, as well. Because um, I've been obsessed with Baldur's Gate since 1998, so I do need to mention the Switch version of Baldur's Gate, because it's the best thing ever, and I won't talk too much about it, but it's a fantastic port, and it doesn't solve some issues that Baldur's Gate had and has had since day one. But it's just an absolute pleasure to play my favorite game of all time on that console, and they just nailed the controls, and I just wanted to say this because it was, wasn't a done deal at all, and I was really worried that it wouldn't come out as good as I, was, as I wanted it to be. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it, I think. See, on a, on a similar note, I, I'm I'm itching to get Neverwinter Nights on Switch ah, yes. because I've heard it, I've, because I I loved I, it was one of those games like, I loved the original but I never finished it and it was it, I was playing it as like a, as a teenager and I don't think I fully understood how RPGs like that worked at, the, mm. at that time. But now I think about it, it's like maybe rather than going back to like an ancient game that I probably might not got all the way through, maybe I need to do Divinity Original Sin 2. Yeah, like absolutely. No, but that's, that's very much the next step for me. Like I'm, I'm very much enjoying uh, replaying Baldur's Gates right now on Switch and I'm only like, I don't know, 80 hours in or something. But I know that Divinity 2 is, is going to be just perfect to scratch that itch of RPG so, uh, that I have constantly. I was playing <laughs> Original Sin 2 and thinking the whole time, like, oh man, there's like Baldur's Gate, Neverwinter Nights, and Planescape Torment on, on Switch soon. Should, should I should I check those out, or are they going to be too? 
Are are they going to feel too old, crude, missing the quality of life kind of stuff? Is it are the controls going to mm, go? Are the so text the thing too small? is, like, don't, yeah, the text is a bit small. That's one thing, but you can actually tweak everything. So I mean, I'm I'm mainly talking for Baldur's Gate right now, and you should probably don't like not listen to me as far as Baldur's Gate go because I love this game so much that I will just tell people to play it all the time without realizing that maybe it's not as good as I think it is. But I don't think that's the case. It's great. But I've played um, um, Planescape as well, and I thought the control on Switch, sorry, and I thought the controls were super clunky. I played for a couple of hours, and I was out, and I never touched it. I have bought Neverwinter's Night 2 as well uh, for Switch, but I haven't played it yet, so I can't sell for this one. But if you like Baldur's Gate, then play the Switch version, because it's amazing. That's my advice. If I might go back to Mario Maker, I have to watch yeah. them because that I, Mario Maker is, is the game I'm quietly hoping Father Christmas will bring me. Because <laughs> I look I look at my Switch library and it's like I've got sprawling RPGs, I've got Mario Kart, I've got a ton of indie games, but I don't have a decent 2D Nintendo Mario uh, platformer. And I thought if I get Mario Maker, that's all of them essentially <laughs> yeah. in one, and then I can Absolutely. make my own. But the um, so the but the story so the story mode is that how because I. I, I'm almost certainly going to be bad at level design. So, like, how how's the story mode? Like, the levels that are actually provided is, is that any good? Yeah, they're actually just a great. Long tutorial. No, no, no. It, I mean, there's a bit of that, obviously, because the main goal of that story mode is to teach you what mechanics you can use and how you can use them. But they just do. They just this very good. I don't know how to explain. Let me think for one second. But basically, the story modes is you have this castle obviously that just been destroyed and you need to build it again and to build it you need to pay toads actually to um to rebuild the whole thing and you so you need to earn coins by doing those levels that have been created by nintendo so it's a bit of a weird one it's not there's no story like you're just building a castle but um it's just a very very great introduction to all the tools especially if you've not been playing mario maker it just tells you everything there is in the game and has very very clever ways to to show it to you so it doesn't always feel like a tutorial some levels you're like yeah okay fine this one is literally just here to tell you that there's an on and off switch and when you click on the on and off switch that conveyor belt is going to go left and right yeah okay gotcha but they're also overall very good levels um they they tend to be shorter than your typical mario level but generally if you like mario i think it it's worth I think Mario Maker 2 is worth for the story mode only. I actually have a couple of friends who've bought it who never built a single level in that game, but I've played the story mode and they're very happy with it. And the good thing is, like, even if you don't want to build anything, there's so many levels out there that have been created and that are good that if you just want to play Mario for a while, well, you just play Mario Maker and you play that random level and that's great and you don't have to play a level that you've played already because there are so many levels. And How the- varied are the levels? Because I seem to remember with the, with the first Mario Maker on Wii U, all the user-created levels were either stand perfectly still and you'll just win the level because look at us, we've done this very cool Rube Goldberg contraption thing, or they were those stupid, like ridiculously hard mod-style levels and it's like i just want a decent fun mario level is there anything in between there's a lot of in between the problem is they're not always super easy to find because as always nintendo hasn't made it easy to find people or to find levels because you still have that creator code thingy that you need to search and blah 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 it's a mess but um having said that there are filters where you can like search for popular levels and stuff like that for instance or um, rising star levels and stuff like that and those are consistently really good and the right amount of difficulty um, and there's also uh, you can play random I can't remember the name of the mode now there's a mode where you can just you have 10, 5 or 15 lives to start with and you just play random levels after random levels and it's as far as you can get pretty much uh, so you might have some nice surprises in there or you might have a lot of what the community calls hot garbage which is just very very bad level but i think there's a bit of everything and i think it's quite easy to find stuff that's enjoyable and i've just yeah i'm just consistently going back to it uh when i just want some fun really well here's hoping i've been on the nice list this year yeah (laughs) i hope so for you it's a fun game 
Hayden, what's been your favourite game of the year? Uh, I've been flicking back and forth on this uh, a little bit now. So it's either Sekiro Shadows Die Twice or Untitled Goose Game, which I realise are very much kind of polar opposites of kind of what video games have to offer at the moment. But I feel like the, 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 the reason why I'm kind of reluctant to possibly give it to Sekiro even though it is a tremendously well-made game and it's by From Software, who are my favourite developer, and, you know, I've, I've loved basically everything they've done since Demon's Souls, except for maybe Dark Souls 2, but the less said about that, the better. Um, but it just... I feel like kind of Bloodborne was the last truly great AAA game, and since then we've been kind of... Uh, I don't know, I just don't really feel like the AAA industry has done anything terribly exciting or noteworthy or... Like, you know, there's been lots of good games in there, but nothing that I would say that is, like, truly just an exceptional game. Um, a lot of... A lot of just kind of, like, you know... I mean, Matt was talking about, like, big RPGs, you know, things like The Witcher and stuff like that. Like, I I, I don't really... I've tried playing The Witcher a few times now, and it's... it Every time it's ended about 15 hours in with me going, oh, my, I, life is too short for this. It is just too short, this game. Um... So Sekiro, I, I think, like I said, it's exceptional, it's really beautiful, it has a lot of the things that I really like about From Software games, which is kind of the unpicking of the story through going, sort of pouring over item descriptions and piecing it together. But it just doesn't feel particularly special in the way that something like Dark Souls or Bloodborne does. Like, technically it's a real masterpiece, but it just feels like it's kind of lacking like it's 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 kind of it's it's basically kind of impossible to describe it it almost feels like it's just lacking this sort of like this core this sort of like soul that the other games have that just keeps it from being something that's genuinely really special whereas untitled goose game on the complete other end of the spectrum is in many ways like a more sort of philosophically interesting game um if you drill down into things like... I, I think there's kind of an, an interesting article to potentially be written about this, and may, maybe I'm not smart enough to write it. I'm very, I'm willing to accept that, but... When, when Untitled Goose Game came out, everyone was speaking about how uh, people want to play like a, like a mischievous protagonist um, and kind of get up to... kind of get, get in trouble, basically, and, and ca cause a bit of mayhem. But the goose doesn't have a moral centre and so has no idea of like right or wrong, of morality. It's only you as the player who have this notion of right or wrong. And so you use the goose to kind of enact your like evil deeds. But in the game world, the goose cannot be evil because it has no moral centre. It doesn't know the difference between right and wrong. And so you go around this town just terrorising these innocent people through fairly like innocuous well not not innocuous but through mostly harmless acts and except for that one kid in the phone box who i must have i'm i think i locked that kid in that phone box every time i walk past because <laughs> i'm i'm cruel and i enjoy it um and that's kind of the thing with untitled goose game is like it encourages you or not so much encourages you but it doesn't deter you from being a real asshole like, there is no punishment for that in the way that other games might do, where, you know, you get a little thing pop up in the corner and say, they will remember that, or you've got some sort of karma meter or something. Like, you are just a, you're just a goose, and you're in the town, and it is up to you to decide the, the flavour of mayhem you want to inflict. And there's something very freeing about that. I do find and it interesting that, as you say, like, most most games where there is a moral kind of uh, balance, you can either be good or evil. There isn't really that much of an in-between. And you are either good, you're just this paragon of wonder and you're righteous and you're doing everything to help everyone. Or evil is just you're a complete arsehole and you're killing mm -hmm. people or you're... you're destroying things like whereas as you say like there's just the harmless nature of what the the goose is doing means that actually like being quote-unquote evil isn't hmm. that evil it's you're, you're more of a yeah. frustration than you are are, are uh, you know, an evil as it were 
Yeah. You, you, you're, you're a public menace. It's not like in Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic where, if I remember this correctly, I think I... I think I like used my Jedi mind trick to convince one character to kill their best friend um, because it was like the most evil thing I could do and I wanted to do it. Um, and you know, the game, it, it is fun when you get to do stuff like that, but there is something to be said for just like being, being a nuisance, kind of causing a bit of mischief, a bit of mayhem that is, is broadly harmless. And then when you you know, like, one of the most satisfying moments in that game, you know, this is a big spoiler for Untitled Goose Game, is when you get in a cardboard box and <laughs> you get picked up and sort of somebody is carrying you and then you just, like, flap out of the box, like, honking and <laughs> flapping your horns. And, I mean, that's that that is just a moment of just, like, pure joy. And... I don't know. There's there's something about Untitled Goose Game where like everything you do, everything you do feels very innocent because the goose has this kind of this innocent look to it. You know, it, it's just a goose. Like it, it's a goose. It doesn't know evil. It can't knowingly inflict evil. I don't know. But I've, you as I've the met, I've met geese and like so. My, my the random tangent, but my my school used to have like a rural studies unit. So basically, like a miniature farmyard on the school property, and those geese hmm. were bastards. They were, they <laughs> well, knew they could smell fear. They knew which kids to harass <laughs> and which ones to ignore. So no, geese are arseholes. Well, I, I I will concede that that geese are definitely assholes. I mean, the the tagline of Untitled Goose Game is "It's a lovely day in the village and you are a horrible goose." <laughs> like, I think the re- I think the reason they chose a goose is because geese are kind of notoriously quite like aggressive animals. Um, you know, they will like chase people and bite them and things like that. But they're ultimately just animals. Like, they have no like I say, they have no moral center. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. Whereas you, as a player, do. So you make the conscious decision to be as nasty as possible. But then when you look at the goose on the screen, it's quite cute and it just has this in- these innocent little beady eyes and then it flaps its wings and goes, ha! And you just go, oh, you're just a lovely little goose. And then you go chase a little boy into a phone box again. Like, <laughs> there's, something, there's something really just kind of sweet and innocent about the whole game, despite the fact that it encourages like kind of just wanton mayhem and like acts of like acts bordering on cruelty so it's this very interesting game that manages to kind of have its cake and eat it honestly you get to be a bastard and yet you also get to just kind of be quite innocent and cute and i think there is no other there is no game no other game sorry like untitled goose game um in the same way that when like Dark Souls and Demon Souls came out, there was no game quite like those games, and that's kind of what made them special. And I think that's for me kind of looping all the way back to Sekiro. That's what Sekiro is kind of lacking for me this year. Like, again, a, a an excellent, I would say, ten out of ten game in every single respect, but it's missing something kind of ephemeral, something you can't place your finger on, something that can't be quantified. And Untitled Goose Game has that. It has this this kind of core that you can't necessarily put words to what exactly it is, but it has it. And I think that's why, for me, I would say kind of Untitled Goose Game is my game of the year in terms of I of all the games that got made this year or released this year. I'm glad that this was the one. Like, if we could only have one game this year released in at all i would say it should be untitled goose game so yeah those are my complex and confusing thoughts about my my (laughs) games of the year nice What's yours? Uh, I have I've officially reached that age where I am into indie games rather than big massive AAA ones because like I'd love I'd love to have spent the year playing like Borderlands three and uh, Crackdown three and maybe all the other ones that I've missed this year. Control I really wanted to play Control. James, I'm t- I'm 28 and I've reached that age. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, the the game I just that I just came away with and I can't stop thinking about and I've actually dipped back into in the run up to um to this uh, is Heaven's Vault by Inkle. Uh, 
Ah, uh, yes, this is my runner-up. I'm so happy you're talking about it. It's such a great game. It's just wonderful. Now, I, I already like Inkle. I already like their kind of their narrative games. I have to say I never got into the sorcery games, but 80 Days, I am still, every now and then I still download 80 Days and go around the world a few times because just the sheer branching nature of that narrative. And I was worried because like this doesn't feel like it plays to their strengths. This is 3D. Um, you're wandering, navigating environments textually. That's not a word, but in terms <laughs> of text, there is a lot less of it. Um but the story feels so much richer to me. Like I, I, I've been playing it recently. Like started my second playthrough. Like just the subtle way that certain lines, like they're vague enough to trigger your imagination and spark off theories and stuff in your head, but not so vague that you get annoyed that well you're not telling me anything. You're just being purposefully, you know, kind of obtuse. Like it, the central thing that I absolutely love about it is obviously the um, the archaeology. The the, the translation mechanic so you you find hieroglyphics of this weird ancient language and you have to guess what the words might be and you are literally guessing like it gives you when you first start it it gives you all right here are a bunch of um symbols some of the you know like they're all smashed together so you don't know where the ends and beginnings of words are but below there are some guesses as to what each word might be and you lay those symbols over the the fragment of text you're trying to translate and you're trying to work out right okay may blessing of water bring life that makes sense and we're in a fight and you have to think about the context of what it is like okay so this is a water goddess statue presumably it's going to be something to do with water and as time progresses you eventually start to recognize symbols or recognize the way they're used like and I kind of like so yeah like water obviously is like wavy lines right if I see that I know the word is something to do with water um there is kind of a, a swooping kind of almost like an, a capital A kind of frame that I now recognise as either a noun or something to do with anything religious. And as you, you go on, you start to learn this language that, let's not forget, a developer has completely made up. Like, they've made it up well. I think it's, I believe I read that it actually fits, like, the rules of a language. It, it works as a language. But you're trying to go through. And the best thing is, like, rather than, rather than telling you, yep, you've got that right, you know, with a kind of Zelda-style chime... It doesn't tell you anything. It just like it, it, it. You just okay, right? You think that's your best guess? Okay, we'll carry on and we'll see. And eventually, when you've done enough um, inscriptions, you've you've tried to translate enough text. There's certain similarities between the way certain words are used, and eventually the character will go, Ah, right. I must be correct in my translation of this, or she'll be like, Ah, I must be wrong about this. And then you think, Right, well, I'm gonna have to go back to all the other inscriptions where I've used that word and see if I can work out what the missing gap is. And you can quite easily, you can go back to any inscription that you've found you can go back and, and try and have another go at any point i could lose hours just going back through my inscriptions and trying to make sure i've got the best that's just the mechanic the actual story the, the overall story you are an archaeologist searching the the nebula which is this weird collection of like rocks and they say moons but they're basically very big rocks and gas and these um and and rivers so there are these rivers of hydrogen oxygen and ice that flow through the nebula and that's what carries your ship between the different planets and you are exploring because you're trying to investigate the history and you you, you start off investigating the a missing um roboticist who has gone who has disappeared and you find out he was onto something and it gets very kind of indiana jones da vinci code style levels of story where you you're you're unlocking like some sort of secret history and just the further you go, the more intrigued you get, the more you learn about this world. And genuinely, and I, I don't think since the original Mass Effect have I come across a sci-fi universe where I got such a strong sense of the culture and the background and the history of this place and just wanted to know more. It is mm. truly wonderful. There was a point t towards the end of the game um, where you... This is optional, I'm pretty sure. Like, I think, I think there's, like, a certain amount... I've only played it through once, so James, you can correct me. I think there's, like, a certain amount of different things you can't... Different, like, places you can go and, like, things you can discover to translate. And you don't have to do them all, but at a certain... Like, you need to do a certain amount of them. And some lead to others, but you need to do a certain amount of them in order for it to kind of unlock the end state of the game is sort of yeah. what, I, what I think happens. Um, but there's one there's one place... You, and you can totally miss this You if you don't... If, if you just never stumble across it. But there's there's this kind of rock-like thing that James was talking about where you go and it, the uh, the oxygen levels are really low. 
and you have a really like limited amount of time there, like actual real time to explore it. But if you're efficient about it, you can get a hold of this giant book, just this enormous book. Oh, that book. Yeah. And, yeah. Carry and on. You can get, if you get the book, it's like chained to something and you're like desperately trying, you can like make the decision to give up or not. And you can keep on trying and keep on trying. And I, I did, like I pushed myself so hard to get that book because I wanted it so hard. And I, I ended up, I, I didn't think I could kill the character. So I kept, I kept trying and she ended up not dying. Uh, the robot saved her. Um, and the robot took me back to the ship, and then there was a again like to, like just had a cutscene, nothing, nothing really from there. Thought we had left the book behind, and then there there are points where if you want, you can move on to the next thing, or you can just sort of sit in your ship and look at your collection of things that you've gathered from places. And the next time I was doing that, I looked around the room and I realized the book was there, and I went up to examine it, and the robot's like, "Yeah, I got it. I got it with you too. Like I I saved it, and like just just fucking incredible." And then I I opened it up. And it's this giant, like, history of everything, but it's yeah. all in this language, and you have to translate it line by line by line. I sat there, I was streaming the game, and I translated this book, because you do a page, and then it asks you if you want to go on to the next one or if you want to end, and you could just keep going. And I sat there for an hour and a half and just translated, just sat there, just word after word after word after word. And it was So how much, so how much did you get through then? Because I, I got that book, and I was like, this is it. This is the key to everything. This has the history, this has the answer to all the questions that I've been forming for the last... 10 hours and the the translations in that book are the hardest that I came across are, in my yeah. playthrough and I couldn't and, and I've I, I've dabbled in I've, I've nipped onto there's an Inkle discord for, um, forum and there's a bunch of people like really delving in there are people on their eighth or ninth playthroughs um, and they are still trying to translate this book as far as I can tell and I cannot find like just a, a succinct like translation of this book online anywhere and I even I even asked Asked Inkle, I asked, I, I saw John Ingold at um, Develop Brighton. I was like, please, can you just, like, is there a translation of this book in, somewhere? And he's like, no, you have to keep going. You have to keep trying to, uh, to you know, go through. Because this was the, this is the clever thing as, as well. Like the, the New Game Plus system here, essentially, when you finish the game, um, the way the game ends, you then can restart and you have remembered everything that you've learned. You think, oh, brilliant, I'm going to breeze through the second playthrough because I've got all this language. But then the, the, trans, the inscriptions you're translating are then more complicated and there are more words and more symbols. So case in point, the, the very first symbol you, um, the very first uh, inscription you translate in the in the first playthrough is two words. When it's you the, go, it's the well, with, right? It's like the or the water goddess, right? It's, it, yeah. it, no, it's um, it's the it's the the bracelet. It's holy emperor. Oh, that's right. Oh, uh, right. yeah. When you watch, when you do the second playthrough, it's like four words. It's like holy emperor of something or all praise holy emperor. It's like, and everything is more complicated. So I'm now trying to go through again, and it's yeah, like. A, uh, the branching nature. So I remember when we were first playing this, Rebecca, like you and I were having completely different experiences. Like you say, like you can miss entire planets. On this second time round, I have found an entire market planet that I had not been able to access the previous time. Ah! That's and, amazing. And like, uh, that really makes me want to go back to it. I had no idea that the sci-fi universe was that developed. Like I, I didn't finish it, unfortunately, but I had no idea it was that good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there's like there's a there's a set amount of things in the universe you can discover some of them are locked behind other things like th there are a couple points where something very dramatic and meaningful changes that like like it opens up other things that weren't available otherwise yeah. and i think mm. once you get once you get a certain amount of information that's when you can do the thing with the with the gate and and get to the end game state at that point but yeah you can miss like whole big story plot points and you can also do them in different orders like i know james was talking about finding this one i think it was the ship or something finding this giant discovery really early on in the game that i didn't find until near the very end and my perspective yeah. of how everything was was shifted because of when i found that the last last thing i'll add about this and this is purely because i have stumbled upon this today in in preparation for, for this oh podcast there's um and it, it, maybe it's something you picked up on Throughout it, there's a there's references to a faith or a religion or a belief called the loop, and they yeah. believe that that everything that has happened will happen again. They believe if you die, you'll just come back in future, and they it's very kind of based on the idea of reincarn reincarnation. Except your character doesn't believe in it because she's an archaeologist. She's like, I know that people die and don't come back. I only just twigged, and I say twigged, I mean read in a polygon article. 
you doing multiple playthroughs yeah. that's the loop that is the loop so you're living that's amazing this, this reincarnation yeah. theory i was like and that just blew my mind and i'm now like i, I need I'm, I'm so divided because it's coming out on switch next year and i can feel this is the sort of thing i would play on switch so much because mm. it's it's very slow paced it can be very slow paced and i'll be honest my my Console gaming time at home is, is minimal, so I like something that I can dip into for 20 minutes and blow up loads of things and just just muck around for 20 minutes, and this is quite slow. So I'm like, right, do I get it on Switch, and then I can just work on it over years and years and years and years, like on you know train journeys and plane journeys or whatever, and just go through so many loops? Or do I push on because I've already done a playthrough in a bit, and I've already made it such headway on the language? It, I'm divided, but it's... You can tell we've been very very vague with this, and it's because it, it really does need to be played for itself to be experienced. I heartily recommend Heaven's Vault. I absolutely adore it, just because as as someone who's just loved to learn languages throughout her life, it, it's the first time I see a game that captures that feeling of learning a language and how you can never like it depends how you learn the language i guess but it just captures that feeling of trying to figure out what something means and then all of a sudden because you know that thing you all of a sudden that other thing that you read earlier totally makes sense when it really didn't when you first read it and stuff like that and i, I really need to get back to it because it sounds like there's much more depth to it that what i thought but i did absolutely adore the approach to the language and the translation and and all of that i thought was absolutely brilliant well, if you want to hear more, or rather read more, of our thoughts on our favourite games of the year, we are in fact publishing our various Game of the Year articles uh, on GamesIndustry.biz this week. Um, in the style of the excellent Why I Love series that Brendan curates, we are all trying our hand at trying, trying to get across in words why these games are so special to us, so keep an eye out for those. Thank you very much, everyone, for joining me. Uh, you can find all our previous episodes on all good podcasting platforms of your choice, and you can get your daily dose of news, insight, and analysis at gamesindustry.biz. Have a very happy holidays. Mm -hmm.